Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, we're catching up with Sean McGinnis from Kuru on the CRO tactics that doubled their revenue, as well as a preview of what Sean's going to be sharing at C-Suite Las Vegas Mastermind, March 23rd and 24th, just under two months away. Our goal with the people we're bringing as mentors at C-Suite Mastermind is that each of them brings a fully fleshed out three-dimensional model of a profit mechanism that they've perfected for their business so that attendees can literally learn them and then plug and play these tactics and strategies for incremental growth in 2023. Sean is delivering on that in Las Vegas by going deep on his seven-figure affiliate program strategy, which will save brands thousands of dollars in misspent affiliate fees. And as a former reformed sketchy affiliate, I can say you don't want to miss this one. We're just over half sold out with under two months left to show date. And if you're listening to this and thinking you just got to be in the room, but you don't have the funds for a ticket, send me an email at directtoconsumer.co and I'll select one highly worthy person for our bi-weekly scholarship award for a free pass to C-suite. So whether or not you come, I think you're going to love this podcast as much as I did. On with the show. Let's dig into some CRO. E-commerce doesn't have to be hard. Why try to make it hard? When I got here, the font was a pretty light gray and a white background. The contrast wasn't the best. So I instructed the team to move it to black. That moved the needle. One day I was looking at it on the phone. I was like, boy, it's kind of hard to read. And I was like, hey team, let's increase the font size by like four font points. Lo and behold, conversion rate goes up. On our collection pages, we'd show you one variant of the shoe and three or four different color swatches under that. Our catalog's not that big. Let's show all five variants from a color perspective on the collection page. And by doing that, again, conversion rate went up. Trying to focus on the elimination of clicks has served us quite well. So all those things combined, we had a 95% increase in conversion rate. Welcome to the D2C podcast, Sean McGinnis from Kuru. This is the third time you've been on the podcast. And when I was picking mentors for this Las Vegas event, our talks have always just been filled with such value that you were an obvious choice. So welcome to the D2C podcast again. How you doing? Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. I'm doing really well. So you also recently wrote an article for us. So we were talking about like what you're going to talk about in Las Vegas. And we were kind of talking about whether you could expand on a little bit of writing that you've done for us, um, I think back in September on essentially uh, the way you were able to double the conversion rate of Kuru. We ended up talking about that and we ended up kind of coming up with a whole other topic idea that we'll tease in this preview. But why don't we just start talking a little bit about the turnaround that you kind of architected at Kuru. Can you first set the stage of why the turnaround was required? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I joined Kuru at the end of 2019, uh, pretty close to Halloween. So uh, 2019 was a difficult year. It was the first year that the business had gone backward. The story internally from a narrative perspective, I know we've talked about this on previous casts, but to just kind of set the stage, the business had grown really dramatically. We've been around since 2008. And so um, the business had kind of grown and grown and grown fairly consistently. Along the way, they migrated platforms a couple times, but landed on uh, Magento 1 for a good bit of that growth story. Uh, Magento 2 rolled out and the t- internal team said, well, let's just hold off on the migration. Let's let Magento 2 kind of iron out a few of the bugs, right? So they they eventually said, now's the time, the time is right. So this is in 2017. Um, in 2017, they embark on this project. And at the end of 2017, they launched the Magento 2 web store. The problem was it wasn't a very uh, well-run or well-handled uh, migration. 
for a number of different reasons. The one is that they changed literally everything. They changed from Magento 1 to Magento 2, so the code base and the whole back end, the infrastructure all changed. They changed their development agency. They changed their hosting provider. They changed the front end look and feel of the website from a design and a UI UX perspective. And also importantly, they left behind 300 pages of content that had been performing well in SEO. So that did not go well. That migration, I won't call it a, it, it was very difficult. There's a lot of kind of battle scars internal to the business to this day. Um, and so 2018 turned out to be a flat year over 2017. Uh, toward the end of 2018, the CEO was kind of grasping at straws and wanted to get back on a growth pathway and wound up giving over pretty much the entirety of the marketing program to a local digital agency. And so uh, the firm spent quite a bit more in Q1 of 2019, and that was flat to 2017 and 2018, and unprofitably flat. So the revenue was flat, but the spend was up. So the back half of 2019 was just a disaster. Um, revenue was down for the full year, 25 to 30%. Um, so that kind of sets the stage of, of um, when I was when I was brought in to, and, and joined the business. We took a whole number of steps, some of which were marketing related and some of which were web related. Um, but the, the core of uh, what we did to kind of drive the conversion rate up that I wrote about in the article there were three or four kind of major things that we did. Do you want me to kind of jump into those or is that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I actually, I, I wanted to, I, I was just reading your piece and you said that there was the first thing that you did that you weren't really talking about in the article because it's CRO focused was to focus on more qualified traffic. And I was just curious if you had a, a note on that, what that actually means in this context. Yeah, so what, one of the things that we actually did, um, I moved away from the agency and started to build an internal team, but the very first step that I took, so uh, I took about six weeks building a bunch of dashboards so that I could understand really what was happening in the business. It was just giving me, buying some time to really understand you know, what was the three year or so history of users and, and from what channels and what were the conversion rates and what was the traffic mix from a demographic perspective in terms of age and gender and, and conversion rates and really just trying to absorb all the data that I possibly could. Ultimately, we decided to move away from the agency and to hire two folks internal to take over what they were doing. So I hired a paid search person and hired a paid social person. But before we went and embarked on the, uh, that writing those job descriptions and getting those jobs posted, I personally went in and disabled 20,000 ads across Google, Bing, and uh, Facebook that were not returning in a positive ROAS. And so effectively what we did was we, we I kind of lovingly referred to that time as the baseline project. You know, I looked, uh, the business was actually unprofitable that year and we were in a series of months where we were not profitable and, and upside down. And I, I turned to our leadership and said, you got a great business here, just not at the volume that you want to be at or that you'd historically be, been at. And in order to buy some time to really evaluate how we can turn around and grow this thing, I need to get us back to profitability. And so that's what we did. We, we drew down revenue um, and immediately went from losing money to making money, uh, literally with the flick of a wrist. So those 20,000 ads, they were um, keywords inside Google and, and different ad structures. Everything that wasn't returning a two or better row as on last click got, got turned off. And it was just that simple. So that's what kind of set the stage in terms of sending better qualified traffic with a higher intent into the website. Thank God you did this when you did. Just like looking at the sort of macro climate of like e-commerce. It's not to say these things wouldn't have worked if you were having to do them right now, but just to have that lead time to get that stuff done before, you know, uh, economic trends worsen was probably critical. 
Yeah, it bought us a lot of runway, right? And it bought us some time to go post those roles. And uh, you know, then we did some other things. We embarked on a comprehensive rebuild of the paid search account structure, and that was a big driver of success in addition to the, you know, some of the pandemic-fueled um, uh, macroeconomic shifts that we saw that, that year. Can you talk a little bit about the SEO trauma that you face? SEO is just something that we're just trying to build up on the on our website, and to all of a sudden lose a big chunk of your traffic there must have been brutal. Yeah, it's been a really interesting narrative. If you look back historically at the business, again, things were doing pretty well. I mean, they were... They had done some things in the past that were maybe a little bit gray hat, um, but uh, a lot of what they were doing was really good work. They were they were basically creating high quality content that was answering their customers' questions, right? And so SEO was pretty strong throughout the history of the business until that migration. And when that migration took place, you saw it kind of fall away pretty dramatically. It was on the upswing, and we embarked on a project with a, a pre-existing SEO consultant to really um, retool some things and, and relaunch some of the older content. Not all of it by any stretch, but we saw a really strong um, uh, traffic increase and revenue increase with SEO throughout 2020 and 2021. And as you and I talked kind of off camera, in late 2021, Google made a change to their algorithm, and they, as they frequently do, you know. Um, we were not by any stretch of the imagination penalized for the things that we had done previously, but Google had, had made a change that if you run a search uh, anywhere in our space today, you'll see a very strong tendency to favor uh, big name publishers with a kind of listicle approach, right? Uh, what we've seen historically over the last four or five years is uh, more and more consumers are running searches preceded by the word best. Show me the best version of X, right? I'm uh, the best small SUV for families of four. Like the, you, know, you get all those kind of, partly because they've been recommending searches with their autocomplete, you know, and, and auto uh, the, the search suggest box and the things that kind of drop down. But partly just because we've been, we've retrained our brains, right? Well, I always want to see the best um, flannel shirt for men that comes in a tall size or whatever it is, you know, that we're, that we're looking for. And so the consumer intent that, that gets associated with that kind of is that, you know, Google's assumed that, that, that what you're looking for when you run those kind of queries is you're looking for a breadth of answers, not the one version of, uh, not the one singular shoe that's best for plantar fasciitis. We're going to give you, you know, uh, some publisher from Forbes or CNN or whoever that's giving you a list of 23 options that, you know, some editor has written about, um, whether they've actually worn the pairs of shoes or not. And so that's what we saw immediately in October. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, we suffered through a good bit of 2022 with a year over year degradation from traffic and revenue in the SEO space. Despite our, you know, heroic efforts, the team rewrote 150 pages of content last year to try and make it more useful for readers. And it didn't really, you know, do the thing. And so we're reinvesting again in 2023 to really focus on trying to recapture that volume. We, we believe that not only can we do that, that we can take it to the next level. So we think we can triple and quadruple the level of we were at before, uh, which is nowhere at where we're at now. So we're really excited for 2023 and beyond. And we've talked about how you sort of thought about categorizing the intent of the visitors on your site and kind of building content around that. I'm curious though, what else are you doing on, what are you doing differently with your new SEO efforts than you were doing before? Yeah, we're, uh, we're taking the content to the next level by making it even more helpful. That's one foundational element. The other one is to just build awareness of the brand through PR um, and link building activities. So we've hired a public relations firm out of New York. We're excited to kick that off. Literally, our kickoff call is next week. I'm really excited to work with them. 
uh, in the middle of last year, we hired a digital PR specialist that, so we're creating content that is designed to go a little bit viral and get picked up. Um, we just actually released another piece today. So we're constantly um, creating content that is relevant for our users and relevant to the brand and relevant to the business in hopes that, um, that we can get some a little bit more attention from the mainstream media. Uh, we're embarking on, we're wrapping up the initial phase of what we're hoping will be turned into the definitive study around foot pain in Americans. So it's, it's, we're investing a lot of money and a lot of our kind of creativity and time and attention to better understand our customers and better understand the problems that we actually solve and put all those things in context in kind of bite-sized chunks that we can feed outward and hopefully grab some attention from the media. Nice. I think SEO is something that our audience is always interested in. And of course, they're always interested in doubling their CRO, their conversion rate. So what were some of these things that you uh, embarked on that worked the best for moving the needle on uh, Kuru's conversion rate? Yeah, it's not really sexy. Like this is not, you know, advanced CRO stuff. Um, I've, I'm famous around here for saying like e-commerce doesn't have to be hard. You know, why try to make it hard or complicated? Um, there's certainly advanced levels that go well beyond what we did, but the, the four or five things that we did were pretty foundational. I mean, when I got here, the font was a pretty light gray and a white background. The contrast wasn't the best. It's, it was pretty hard to read. Um, so I instructed the team to move it to black. That moved the needle. One day I was looking at it on the phone. I was like, boy, it's kind of hard to read. And I was like, well, our customers are supposed to be pretty old too. Hey team, let's increase the font size by like four full font points. Lo and behold, conversion rate goes up, right? Like um, these were pretty basic things. Um, the other one we did, you know, our, at the time our catalog was pretty small and we were taking this approach on our collection pages where we'd show you one variant of the shoe and three or four different color swatches under that. So the, the collection page looked First of all, really small. It made you look smaller than we were from a revenue perspective. And um, we went back to showing all of the main color variants on the collection page. And in my, my mind, the theory was, if we keep things the way they are and we show one color variant with a swatch, you might have to click two or three more times to actually see that shoe in that color. So it, it, first of all, there's the, the swatch is like, eh, is that blue? Is it black? Like, what is it? You click on that style. Then you got to go hunt and peck and find the right color variant. So it's at least two clicks to see a full-size image of that shoe in that color. Our catalog's not that big. Let's show the whole thing. <laughs> Let's show all five variants from a color perspective on the collection page. And by doing that, again, um, conversion rate went up. And, and having the same thing on PDP, rather than having a little swatch, we put the full, uh, smaller, a miniature version of the full-size shoe in that color as the selectable color variant. Again, conversion rate went up. So just kind of treating, thinking about how big the collection was and trying to focus on the elimination of clicks has, been, has served us quite well. The last thing that we did was, you know, we had, we've always had free shipping, free returns, and free exchanges. And that messaging was kind of on the homepage and it was um, on the, the PDP as well, kind of buried a little bit down kind of where the rest of the value proposition was. And I said, hey guys, let's let's just test a, sh a free shipping bar. Let's make it persistent, put it at the very top. We put, you know, made it black, all caps and white letters, free shipping, free exchanges, every order um, continental US or whatever it was. Conversion rate went up another 20%. So all those things combined, basically, when you look at the direct channel traffic of, of the year before and the uh, in the 2019 and then in 2021, we had a 95% increase in conversion rate. 
Right now, you're probably looking at conversions in Facebook or Google ads thinking, why doesn't the data line up with my actual sales? Why doesn't more spending bring more customers? What ads are even working? With Northbeam's first-party data and cutting-edge AI, you'll know what ads generated every dollar of revenue across all your channels, all in one platform. Frankly, the best marketers on earth use Northbeam. It's one of our favorite tools and the industry leader in marketing attribution. Visit northbeam.io to see why and mention this podcast for a special deal only for D2C listeners. One thing I wanted to talk briefly about this, we're going through this on, on the education side at D2C is we have all this data coming in and we sort of have these theories about the kind of products we should create on the education side. But I just had this chat with my partner and he was just sort of saying, we just got to start testing. We just got to start every week having a new thing in there and get people to sign up for a waiting list, see if they like it and just really find what sticks. You know, it sounds like a lot of the tests that you've described here are kind of just you thinking about things, getting them implemented. But how is your team, is it an expectation on your team within the CRO team specifically that they're going to be testing a certain amount of things per week? Or does it just kind of come up as you think of it? Yeah, we sequence things pretty regularly. So we're, what we're uh, today is a really good example. I sent an idea over to our head of growth and said, hey, is this worth testing? And his answer was, uh, in theory, yes, but we're expecting a brand new version of the homepage to be delivered from our UI UX agency anyway. And that new variant lacks the component you wanted to test removing. So let's not test that, right? So we're, we're always constantly thinking about and sourcing ideas. Uh, I'll say the other thing that's, I think, like a little bit helpful and, and just in terms of context is um, I like to call it like new guy eyes, right? I came in from outside f- fresh. I, ha- I had no history about what I thought, what, you know, what had been tested before or what performed or didn't perform. And I think those, those fresh eyes can really be helpful. And so I am a big um, advocate um, internally and elsewhere of like going and sourcing some of those ideas, whether it's on Twitter, you know, you and I are active kind of players in the D2C Twitter sphere. Uh, there's a number of pretty strong CRO players in that space. A lot, half the time they'll offer to do a free audit or, you know, take a look at your site and make a couple of recommendations. And um, I source those pretty regularly and funnel them into the e-com team and say, hey, you know, here's some ideas. I'm not mandating that you run these tests. I'm just asking you to watch the video or to, you know, read the, um, the notes that they provided. Make your own judgment. You know, ultimately, um, we're, we're constantly, there's no shortage of ideas on things to test typically. And so it's all usually about sequencing those things in the right way. You know, as you know, we migrated from Magento 2 to Shopify last year. And when we made that migration, we, were, we made sure to keep the design exactly as it was before. So we didn't have this question about, oh my gosh, performance degraded or performance went up. That's because we migrated Shopify. We, we really isolated the change. And so once that was done, we immediately started testing our way into a completely new design. So we've been working with a UI UX design agency, and we're really just trying to get into a new design framework. And then from there, we'll really start CRO testing. So this new design framework is just designed to kind of modernize the look and feel of the website and um, build some trust signals in and make it you know perform basically the same or hopefully a little bit better. But if it doesn't, then we'll really, whether it does or doesn't, we've got a whole series of CRO initiatives that we plan to kind of test from here. So we're so close. We're really, really close. We're, we've, we launched the new PDP a couple of weeks ago. We're testing the new PLP um, variant right now. The homepage has already been done once. It's, it's being worked on again. And then our primary content template for our Experts Corner pages, we call them Experts Corner, where we're sharing you know, nuggets about foot pain and how to kind of manage your day-to-day. Once those are all kind of done, then we start really um, hitting the gas on the CRO side. 
we talk all the time about product display pages. We probably don't talk about PLPs as much and the, the listing pages for all your products. You spoke a little bit about the optimizations you made with uh, showing variants versus just swatches. Uh, you, you mentioned in the pre-interview what like your dream PLP looks like. Do you have any other like big ideas that people should be considering on their product listing pages? Well, one thing that, that I have found is it's important to really know where your traffic is coming from and where it's landing. And so, uh, honestly, when, when we were performing most of last year for um, our kind of money terms like shoes for plantar fasciitis, it was oftentimes the women's plantar fasciitis category page that was performing, you know, ranking number one or two or three in Google. And so, um, you know, we continued to kind of feed that by um, we would put a, a couple paragraphs of content toward the top of the page and then a customer review. You know, that is um, that fights against or is in tension with the conversion optimization play of trying to make the PLP perform better from a revenue perspective um, in terms of like click through rate and conversion rate, you know, passing it, passing it through as an intermediary funnel step in the customer journey. But those two things are intention. You have to kind of balance them out, right? So my, my recommendation would be to don't always just think about pure content or landing pages or SEO pages as potential landing pages for SEO. Think about your PLP pages. Sometimes the, they're one degree away from the root from a link internal linking perspective. And with a little bit of content, whether it's the top of the page or the bottom of the page, you can send the right signals to Google and actually um, have those pages outperform things that you've specifically designed for SEO. And in your and in your case too, it's it's a very problem aware group where they may not be looking for a new kind of you know ergonomic shoe. They may be looking for relief from their plantar fasciitis. So it makes sense that a more, that a page that speaks to that is going to meet them where they're they're at. Yeah, exactly. So very cool. Okay, well let's do a little preview uh, on what we're going to be talking about at C Suite Las Vegas. I come from the affiliate world, and I come from a really you know the the recesses of the affiliate world in some ways, where we were slinging offers, uh, ringtones, and things like that, and it was all arbitrage, where we had to put our money up front ahead of time, and then we'd make money on the on the back end. And in those days, it was very much the wild west, so you'd get away with whatever you could get away with. Uh, and we, we was using the metaphor as sort of affiliates are like uh, they're mercenaries, they're kind of like water. And that they'll they'll fill the cracks. They'll kind of find the level of what's possible in order to make their money. So talk just a, a high level about your experience in affiliate and what you're going to be talking about in Las Vegas. Yeah. So I had no experience in affiliate until a little over ten years ago when I joined Sears and was running marketing for um, a nine-figure brand, you know, vertical uh, category inside of Sears. And so. Um, I got schooled up by one of the best OPMs in the business. Uh, my buddy Greg took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew. And um, he told me, you know, I gave him our program and he told me exactly what was going to happen. And uh, it's exactly what happened. You know, we killed off a bunch of the certain types of affiliates we didn't want to have in the program. And we focused on the types of affiliates that we did want in the program. And we regrew it back to the level that it was at. But we increased the confidence that we had that the deals that were being brought in through that channel was incremental to the business. And that's the same philosophy that we've applied here at Kuro, and we built a seven-figure channel last year by doing that. And so that's what I'm going to share in Las Vegas is kind of the step-by-step. Um, here's what to do. Here's how to think about the channel. Here's what not to do. Here's the types of affiliates and how we think about it and the steps that we've taken to grow that kind of a channel. And it's you know, highly, highly incremental to the business. It, it absolutely saved our bacon last year. And we still see massive upside potential. And I'm really excited to hopefully double or triple revenue this year in that channel. 
And it's one of those things, it's funny, I talk about like Google, if you just put a bunch of money onto Google and you don't know exactly what you're looking for and exactly, you know, you don't have a lot of know-how, it's gonna spend your money and it's not gonna care so much. Affiliates are the same way. If you're gonna put a bunch of money towards your affiliate program, I feel like the things that you're gonna be talking about in your presentation there can help people avoid pitfalls that could cost them tens of thousands of dollars in wasted money that's where, give that example you told about in the pre-interview where, you know, someone was actually like sniping your, your Google results and actually being detrimental. Yeah, I'll, I'll preview one of the slides. You know, what, one of the things that I, I don't like is I don't allow people who are focused just on your brand name to play in your, in your affiliate program. And so we had allowed someone in to our program and we were paying them our premium VIP rate. And basically all they did was they scraped all the content from all of our PDP pages and loaded it up to a page on their website that was all about Kuru Footwear. And it turns out they were ranking number two for Kuru Footwear, but behind our, our branded site. And we were literally just shoveling cash out the door. It was like, you know, we were paying this guy just gobs and gobs of money. And it, uh, thankfully we caught it quickly. I think he was in the program for maybe th three to six weeks, something like that, Eric. And uh, we actually called him and said, listen, uh, we would love to keep you in the program, but I'm reducing your, your commission by like 90%. I'll pay you two to 3%. We're happy to do that. We're not going to allow you to coast off our brand name. And so that became a new requirement that we wrote into the program of we'd already ha said that, you know, we, we don't do paid search affiliates, so you can't bid on our brand terms anyway. The, the whole goal of our program is to focus on top of funnel awareness building and, and use the channel as a shelf play for SEO. Right. So I mentioned all those articles that are performing in SEO. I want to be listed in every single one of them. If you were in a search today for shoes for plantar fasciitis, we're in like five of the top 10 organic listings, but we're competing with 20 other shoe companies. I want our brand to be number one. And then I want the other nine articles to be articles that we're included in. That's my primary objective, but that takes a really strategic way to think about. And there, there are other brands that are, you know, big discounting brands that maybe there's a way to, to leverage other types of affiliates. And we'll talk about all the places that affiliates live in the funnel and the different types that exist. And we'll talk about specific examples in Las Vegas. The ones that I don't play with, I, there's specific ones that I absolutely rule out. And these are companies that as a consumer are great. As a brand, they're just terrible. Like I, as, as a shopper, I go, oh gosh, I love using the, you know, such and such or this and such. I love applying a coupon and getting a discount. Who doesn't? We're not a discounting brand. We don't play with discount and couponers in our affiliate program. So it's, there's, we'll talk about the specific actions that you can take, how to manage a program, how to recruit the right kind of affiliates, the steps you need to take to kind of be successful there to build it into a true incremental channel in 2023, which is again, just something I think everyone's every, like, you know, we're programming a lot of different kinds of content at this event. We've got this affiliate content. We've got a lot of stuff about organic content, building distribution channels. I think we definitely will have a lot of ad content there as well, but it's interesting to see the sea change of people moving towards owned channels like SEO, like, you know, affiliate to it, to an extent. Uh, so I think this fits right in. Well, I'm excited to do it and can't wait to uh, meet all the folks that are going to be there. What else do you like to do in Las Vegas? <laughs> golf usually golf I mean, uh, not adventure. much of a gambler i'm too cheap i'm a i'm a i'm a big golfer and uh if the if the time is right and the sun is out i'll you'll find me on the course so nice awesome well i look forward to it sean uh you want to meet sean and i hang out in las vegas go to directtoconsumer.co slash events grab your early bird ticket while you can and uh yeah sean i'll see you in vegas see you then Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. 
We'll see you next time.